Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Inequality can be tricky to quantify. Economists bicker over what to include or ignore and how to account for different kinds of wealth. It gets especially difficult when the society being judged collapsed several thousand years ago. But using house size as a proxy for wealth, archaeologists are giving it a try. For dozens of archaeological sites over thousands of years, researchers have worked out Gini coefficients. The score goes from 0 to 1. If one person held all the wealth, the Gini coefficient would be 1. If every person were equally well off, it would be 0. Pompeii got a score of 0.54. A site in ancient Egypt got 0.68. Mesoamerican Mexico City was just 0.3. In America today, the Gini coefficient for wealth is about 0.85. And it's probably getting worse. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what, if anything, should be done about economic inequality? By some measures, in the aftermath of the pandemic, income inequality in America is either increasing or remains stubbornly high. On the left, the gap between rich and poor has long been a pressing issue, and more people on the right now agree with them. As both sides of the aisle look for solutions, they're reaching some surprisingly similar conclusions. What are the supposed answers to economic inequality in America? And how likely are they to be taken up? Joining me this week to discuss how unequal America is now and what, if anything, to do about that are Idris Kaloun in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard, who this week is in London. Charlotte, how are you finding London and how was your trip over? I am well. I brought my family this time. We're staying for three weeks and halfway through the transatlantic flight when my two-year-old was singing Danger Zone from Top Gun Fortissimo, I felt like we had made a terrible, terrible mistake But people are adapting slowly to the time change, and I think it'll be fun. She clearly has great taste in music, at least. Um, Idris, how are you doing? What's going on in D.C.? Uh, Things are good. We are slowly, slowly moving in. So, you know, that's that's what my life is at the moment. Uh, Nothing else to report, really. Sad to miss the uh, convention of Howard's. 
I will assure you that the people who are around us on the plane wish they had missed the family convention. <laughs> well, on the theme of family conventions, we have a Kloon family convention on this week's podcast. Last week, listeners may remember, we were talking about affirmative action. And much as the Supreme Court occasionally has dissents read out from the bench, we got a dissenting voicemail from one of our listeners, Sana Kloon, who is a student at Harvard and happens to be Idris's sister. So we're going to save that for the end of the podcast, maybe after the quiz. Before we get there, though, this week, we're looking at economic inequality and some of the policy solutions that are being presented at the moment. Idris, you wrote about this subject in this week's issue of The Economist, and you'll be talking us through the episode. And a couple of weeks ago, you spoke to the guy on inequality research. Thomas Piketty is as close to a celebrity economist as it's possible to be. He teaches at the Paris School of Economics, and in 2014, he published Capital in the 21st Century, which, despite its length and its title, became an unexpected blockbuster. Piketty's work measures in painstaking detail the rise and fall of inequality, and he tries to understand what changes the distribution of income and wealth in societies over time. In particular, he has examined how much national income is captured by the wealthiest citizens and what the social consequences of them hoarding too much of it are. Although he is thought of mostly as a pessimist about inequality trends in recent decades, when he considers the sweep of inequality over the course of centuries, he's rather optimistic. You know, I would really like to stress uh, that, you know, this process has been incredibly successful in the long run. So, you know, this is this process which has brought more equality to the world, and at the same time, more prosperity. So, you know, beginning at the end of the 18th century, in particular with the French Revolution, and to some extent the U.S. Revolution, you have a demand for equality, you know, for political equality, socioeconomic equality, which has been able to transform the world, you know, through enormous political mobilization, social mobilization. In the late 19th century, America had severe economic inequality. During the Gilded Age, the richest 1% held just over half of all wealth in the country, it's estimated. The Great Depression and two world wars depressed the holdings of the wealthiest by a lot. Governmental reforms of the Progressive Era and the New Deal also led to broader wealth sharing. So, you know, the secret of prosperity and why the U.S. were so prosperous during a long time in the 20th century as compared to the rest of the world uh, is not more inequality. In fact, the U.S. were sort of more equal than Europe in the, in the first half of the 20th century. And that equality was, in his telling, the secret to American prosperity in the middle of the century. You know, it's really important to understand, in particular, the U.S. Uh, you know, as a country which has been the dominant uh, economic power during uh, uh, most of the 20th century. This is because the U.S. was the educational leader, you know, as compared to Europe. If you look in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1950s, you have, uh, in the U.S., you have actually 80, 90 percent of a generation going to high school. In, in Europe, it's less than 50 percent. It's actually 20, 30 percent in Germany, France, or Japan. And, and you have to wait until the 1980s to have a, a catch-up in this dimension, which also comes with a catch-up in economic productivity, you know, GDP per hours of work. Then came the turning point. Ronald Reagan's popular economic reforms cut taxes and regulations with the aim of spurring growth. Top marginal rates of tax went down from 70% to 50%, and income from investment was taxed much more preferentially. Piketty argues that the engine of American prosperity was put in reverse, 
Not only did inequality increase over that period, but growth sputtered as well. The national income per capita in the U.S. between the 1980s and, and 2022, you know, has grown at only 1.1 percent per year, as compared to 2.5 percent in the 1950-1980 period, or actually 1910-1950 or 1870-1910. So, you know, the recent decades have been terrible in terms of growth, and at the very least, you know, what everybody should take from this experience is that destroying progressive taxation. And having this big rise of, uh, of inequality is certainly not, a, you know, a sufficient condition for boosting economic growth. Economic growth was divided by two. Capitalism had become synonymous with freedom, and that particular kind of freedom seemed ascendant. In the 1950s, Khrushchev predicted, we will bury you. But in the West today, we see a free world that has achieved a level of prosperity and well-being unprecedented in all human history. There stands before the entire world one great and inescapable conclusion. Freedom leads to prosperity. You know, I think we are certainly out of the most extreme forms of the neoliberal era, if you want. You know, I think the sort of market euphoria and market optimism that we had in the 1990s or in the early 2000s, which, you know, by the way, in the 1990s, when I was 20, 25 years old, I, I was, you know, in a way much more uh, sort of market optimist than I am today, like many people. And, and uh, largely because after the fall of the Soviet Union, we had an era where we believed collectively that market openness, market competition was going to solve every problem. That spirit arguably continued even into the next Democratic administration. In a few moments, I will sign the North American Free Trade Act into law. NAFTA will tear down trade barriers between our three nations. It will create the world's largest trade zone. These days, NAFTA is a boogeyman of both the right and the left for corroding America's manufacturing base. And another Clinton-era decision to allow China to join the World Trade Organization has been pilloried as enabling the rise of America's greatest competition. I believe we have made a decision now that will permit us to create an economic order in the world that will promote more growth, more equality, better preservation of the environment, and a greater possibility of world peace. Faith in this seemingly happy consensus was shook not long after. Beginning with the 2008 financial crisis, we, we, I think we have, we've seen the beginning of the end of the sort of neoliberal euphoria, and the pandemic has accelerated this transformation. Increased government benefits during the COVID-19 pandemic and the tight labor market that ensued after raised incomes for the poorest Americans. But top incomes continue to rise fast. So some measures of inequality showed growing or remaining flat. But we still don't know exactly what's going to come next. You know, is this going to be some kind of neoliberal plateau where the level of inequality, like in a country like the US, is sort of stabilizing at a very high level? Idris, let's start in a slightly nerdy place with measurement. It's very easy to tell different stories about what's happening with inequality in America according to the measure you use. So what, in your view, is a sensible measure to look at? Well, there probably isn't a single ideal one, but you're right. It's complicated and people tend to make this more complicated to choose 
the measures that support their own theory of the case. So to give you a sense of the complications, you could look at overall income, you could look just at wages, but then you could also look at, well, what are wages after taxes, right? We have a progressive tax system that taxes or should tax the rich more and, and tax the poor less. So, and we have welfare programs, et cetera. So what does actual income look like? So very quickly, you run into a lot of methodological questions that seem thorny and technical, but have a big effect on our actual perception of how unequal America is. Now, if you look at all of those in tandem, you do see some trends. You do see that America was incredibly unequal at the start of the 20th century, that this dissipated fairly dramatically as it did across the world in the aftermath of World War II, and that from about 1980 until 2000, there was a fairly swift increase in income inequality, which has petered out roughly over the last two decades. Although wealth inequality, which is a whole other can of worms, has basically been increasing quite a lot since 1980. Yeah. And just to clarify, wealth is more concentrated than income because wealth includes property and financial assets as part of its measure. I mean, one thing that I'm struck by when I look at the data on this and acknowledging all the complications in measurement is that it is the trajectory is decently consistent, right, Idris? And America does stand out. It's the most unequal country in the G7 group of big economies. In the OECD's measure, the countries that are less equal than America are Bulgaria, Turkey, and Costa Rica, which is quite a group. And I think it's important to think about inequality not just on its own, but how other metrics that I think are important to all societies interact with metrics on inequality. So America actually has less social mobility than most other rich countries. And I think that gets to the heart of the debate over what to do or whether to do something about inequality, because America culturally is much more comfortable with tolerating some level of inequality because of the promise of mobility, because of the endless cliches about making it in America that are so integral to American culture. And so the question is, as inequality remains high and as mobility remains lackluster, what you do on the policy side, do you promote policies to help the poor? Do you promote policies to improve mobility? Or do you go after the rich through higher tax rates or all of the above? And those are very interesting intellectual questions, but they're playing out right now in real time across both parties in a way that they hadn't in the past. Just sticking with that, there's a, there's a sort of mathematical relationship between high income inequality and low social mobility. Because when you have very high income inequality or wealth inequality, the distance you have to travel from the bottom of the income or you know wealth distribution to the top is greater. And therefore, almost necessarily, you get less social mobility. The thing that always strikes me looking at America is, to your point, Charlotte, how widely shared the view is that no matter who you are, you can make it. And that's a view that's slightly more commonly found among uh, Republicans and among people actually with less education. The more educated you are in America, the more likely you are to be a bit skeptical of that view. But Americans are still overwhelmingly more likely to think that the American dream and the ability to go from the bottom to the top is, is real and available to everyone than Europeans are, who are much more pessimistic about social mobility 
despite having less income inequality. So it's a fascinating picture. All right, let's pause there for the moment. In a moment, we'll look at some of the policy solutions to inequality that are being proposed on the left and also, perhaps more surprisingly, on the right. First, though, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. You can find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Charlotte and Idris, what have you particularly enjoyed from our last week or so's coverage that subscribers will be able to read or, or listen to? I particularly like this week's cover package. So to embarrass you both, John wrote the really great three-pager that's an inside look at the planning for Trump's second term and what that second term would look like, which is like Edgar Allan Poe horror short story. And Idris wrote the accompanying cover leader. And I think both are bracing and excellent. So I'd recommend everyone go read those. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. And next week, we're going to talk about that reporting that John did and Idris's editorial. So I'm looking forward to asking you both about it. Idris, how about you? Um, I really liked uh, James Bennett's Lexington about uh, how Democrats ought to ditch the Ivy League or at least uh, campaign against it. There would be no more popular position than for them to do so. And uh, I, I thought it was a great read. Yeah, that is a really good column. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Economic inequality has long been a pressing issue for Democrats. But Idris, you were struck recently that it's gaining focus among some Republican politicians and policy wonks too now. Yes, there's actually been a really kind of stark shift within the Republican Party and how they think about inequality and basically their admission that uh, it is a problem that needs fixing. So to walk us through that, I spoke with Orrin Cass, who's a former policy advisor to Mitt Romney and now the head of American Compass, a think tank, which is leading this charge. And in June, they released a really interesting policy book called Rebuilding American Capitalism that resembles a slaughterhouse for Republican sacred cows. There's very little about government deficits, but quite a lot about trade deficits. There's a lot of attention to how to support workers and how to increase government benefits to families. I spoke with him earlier this week to ask him what was going wrong with American capitalism and the usual conservative economics that was meant to address it. Well, I think for us, the idea is that capitalism is still of an amazing system, certainly the best one that's ever been developed or tried. And what's interesting is that it doesn't seem to be working very well at the moment, that it's not delivering on its promise of channeling capital to productive uses, generating good jobs that raise prosperity broadly. Um, And instead, what we see in recent decades is that the things that generate the most profit, that under capitalism are what investors and entrepreneurs are going to go do, are things that don't generate good outcomes. They're offshoring jobs. They're speculating on Wall Street. And so for us, the question is how to get capitalism working again. And it's it's interesting that you say it sort of goes after a lot of old Republican ideas. The question would be, well, how old do you mean by old? Because for the vast majority of American history, generally economic policy, certainly Republican economic policy, was focused on exactly the things we're talking about. America had very high tariffs. America focused intensively on developing domestic manufacturing, on regulating the financial sector, 
on figuring out how to actually create the institutions and the rules that would make capitalism work well. And it's really only in the past few decades that you see what I would call much more a market fundamentalism take over the Republican Party that believes all you need for capitalism is to get out of the way. And so we're just going to have a policy of tax cuts and watch the market work miracles. And there's no reason to believe that should work. And it didn't work. One thing that's fascinating to me is, you know, this idea that left and right might agree that there was something wrong with the old order. I, I hesitate to use the words post-neoliberal because I think that's a horrific formulation, but it's, it's one that people tend to use. Do you think that there is something like that actually emerging from the old, you know, let's call it neoliberal order? I think there is. And for me, the really interesting time period to go back to is between 2012 and 2016, you know, essentially between the Romney campaign and the Trump campaign, Right. And, and you look at the actual empirical data that started to come out. That's when the, the China shock research was published, showing that, yes, in fact, the American people were right and the economists were wrong and <laughs> millions of jobs had been destroyed. That's also when you had the deaths of despair research come out and suddenly people realized that you weren't just getting unequal outcomes. You were seeing catastrophic declines in, in social well-being in, in the demographic groups, in the regions. And so I think it is a sign of a, of a healthy politics that you have people with their eyes open on both sides of the political spectrum saying, this is really broken, something needs to be done. And it's also healthy and not at all surprising that you'll then see a lot of differences on what that thing is that should be done. On a lot of these ideas, industrial policy, uh, kind of child benefit that's a bit more generous, better protections for workers, th- these are ideas that you see emanate from the left as well right now, right? So where do you see this emerging, changing new brand of conservative economics differing from the left in their own kind of process of of reformation? Well, I think all three issues you just mentioned are actually good examples. So if, if you take a child benefit as an example, you know, what the Biden administration has proposed and, and implemented briefly was just a universal, unconditional benefit. We're just going to mail a check to every family every month. Conservatives have rightly, I think, rejected that and said, no, no, you want to have a more generous policy that gets more resources to families, uh, but it needs to be a policy for working families. But that distinction, I think, is exactly an example of both sides seeing a problem, but their principles leading them to very different solutions. I think certainly you see the same thing on labor, where, frankly, I would say more for political than substantive reasons, the Democratic Party is just completely committed at this point to strengthening existing unions, who are the main source of funding to the Democratic Party, and basically trying to figure out how to get more workers into those unions that workers are not, generally speaking, especially interested in joining. Whereas if you look at the sorts of proposals coming from Republicans, you know, Senator Rubio and Congressman Banks, for example, had what, what they called the Team Act, um, which would create a new alternative form of worker representation that looks more like a European Works Council. And with that would come the ability to, to put a worker on the corporate board. Um, so a different, but I would say really significant form of worker representation. And and so so I think these are the kinds of places where I'm very optimistic that that what conservatives are bringing to the table in terms of 
finally acknowledging some of these problems and being willing to apply conservative principles to solving them instead of just thinking tax cuts is a conservative principle, you know, has the potential to really chart a course forward for addressing some of these problems we have in the economy. And how far along do you think this new line of thinking is within the right? You know, I saw the event that you guys did where you had a lot of, you know, influential senators in the new guard, right? You had Senator Vance, Senator Rubio, Senator Cotton there, all sounding very different from what Republicans might have sounded like 15 years ago. So how far along do you think this this shift is within the Republican Party? I think it's fairly far along at this point. And I think the political leaders are almost always going to be a lagging indicator. Folks who are, let's say, elected to the Senate, for instance, tend to be at toward the end of very long careers, have very entrenched views that they're very committed to. And so I don't think it's a surprise, for instance, that the the senators you mentioned, not only are they, I would say, in a lot of ways, the, the most thoughtful legislators, they're also the youngest. They they really do represent a new generation in the Republican Party. And, and I think increasingly, as you see more people sort of coming up to fill the ranks and as those who who joined the Senate in the Reagan years, you know, start to retire from public life. And so I think if you start the clock in the early 20-teens over a 10 to 20-year period, I think the train has left the station and the transition is happening. I think people who say, well, why didn't Congress pass X last year are, are sort of missing the point. Charlotte, really interesting to hear from Oren Cass there. But quite a lot of what he said, I think, could have come from a more democratic-leaning, left-leaning policy wonk rather than from someone who's a bit of a star on the right and played a central role in Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. So why this convergence? How has this come about? It's funny. I think the shift is best exemplified for me if you look at Ohio. So you had Rob Portman, who was in many ways the prototypical old-school Republican. He was the top trade representative and budget director for George W. Bush. And when he retired, he was replaced by J.D. Vance, who is the poster child for this movement. And I think the shift in policy for Republicans away from neoliberal or laissez-faire economics is both dramatic, but also almost entirely predictable if you look at who their voters are. Their voters are not college-educated elites who believe in the benefits of globalization and the free movement of goods and people. Their voters are in the working class who think that globalization screwed them and that elites look down on them and that companies in their states are pursuing a social agenda. So I think if you look at Republicans' constituents, it's not that surprising that this shift is underway. Idris, how much do thinkers and writers on the new right, the sort of folks you, you've written about in this week's issue, how much do they think of income inequality, wealth inequality as a problem to be solved? Or do they just think of it as a byproduct of a system that they don't like and would like to rearrange? Um, I, I think they think of it as a problem. And, and I think they think of it as a problem because the working class just hasn't kept up. I think that there is less worry about the number of billionaires um, in, in the country. I think the left is sort of more concerned about that than than the right is, even under this new orientation. But the breakup of the Republican Party in big business has meant that there's a lot more skepticism 
towards um, business leaders. It used to be thought that being successful was virtuous, and I think that doesn't hold anymore for Republicans. But um, I think their concern is basically that the middle class and the working class has been sold out, at least in, in, in their telling, and that for a long time the Republican Party conceded these issues to Democrats, right? If you remember Obama's campaign against Mitt Romney was really effective with portraying him as an out-of-touch centimillionaire capitalist who didn't care about ordinary people. I wrote a piece last year on the breakup between Republicans and big business, and I had someone tell me off the record that it used to be when a company went into a Republican office on Capitol Hill, the first question from the politician would be, how can I help you? And that has changed dramatically. You start to see some Republicans wading into uh, debates that traditionally have really been dominated by the likes of Elizabeth Warren in trying to target Wall Street, which is no one's best friend at the moment. And so you had J.D. Vance, as an example, working with Elizabeth Warren to create a bill to rescind pay to executives at big banks that had failed. So there is a little bit of that, and we may see more. When I look at the proposals from American Compass or some of the ideas that have been put forth by the likes of Josh Hawley to have a federal minimum wage for all big companies, or you have Marco Rubio's proposal around giving workers more power within companies, I'm struck by the fact that they certainly are radical for Republicans, but with the exception of protectionist industrial policy, which I think is quite radical— they aren't that radical. Like, it doesn't seem that radical to me for a politician to support more cash payments for the poor. And no one is really talking about a huge increase in the tax rate, right, for really rich Americans. There was lots that I found interesting in what Cass had to say there. But one of the things was how he presents his program as conservative in the sense of a return to an older thing. In his view, the 20, 30 years of what he calls market fundamentalism is the aberration. And he wants to take American conservatism back to a pre-Reagan era. Yeah, I think one thing that left and right agree on now is that markets are set up by the state in service of some end, right? And they slightly differ on what those ends are, but they see them as as a means to some to some kind of measure of flourishing that measure is not gdp you know i think that people like cass are trying to recapture some of the spirit of folks like teddy roosevelt who in addition to being a republican was also a trust buster and had a sort of moral compass i think that the real alliance between republicans and big business began post-war arguably in the 70s when the Chamber of Commerce started getting its act together when it was concerned about a more interventionist state. This is important to see as part of a long-term swing and to remember that the alliances that we take for granted as immutable are, in fact, things that evolve, and I think that we're in the middle of seeing that. Well, that's a good place to pause because that alliance between the Republican Party and institutional American conservatism and big business is often associated with the takeoff of income inequality in America in the 1980s. In the next part of the podcast, we're going to look at some of the proposed solutions for income inequality, including the ones proposed by Thomas Piketty.
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Of course, it's not just new thinkers on the right who are coming up with solutions to economic inequality. Idris, you and Thomas Piketty, the economist we heard earlier in the show, spoke about some of his theories about how to reduce income inequality in America. Yes, Piketty believes that uh, economic inequality goes through phases of increasing and decreasing. But when he takes a really long-term view over the centuries of data that he's collected, he finds that it has generally improved over time. You know, I think in the long run, the movement toward more equality is going to continue. But, you know, catastrophic events like pandemic or wars are not necessary and are certainly not sufficient conditions for positive change. And in the end, what will really matter is... uh, collective mobilizations through a new form of uh, collective organization, uh, political parties, social movement, new form of social networks and communication, new form of trade unions. Piketty has argued that there is an ideological shift afoot in how people justify capitalism, and that they should use this moment of introspection to move towards a kind of socialism that he espouses, although he doesn't get too hung up on the exact label. Let me make clear that, you know, for for those of you who don't like the term uh, democratic socialism and who prefer uh, social democracy for the 21st century, I have no problem at all with this. You know, I'm not here to do the police of language. In this socialist system, new management structures could be imposed on the private sector with the aim of empowering workers and limiting inequality in incomes. Countries like uh, Germany or Sweden, where you have up to uh, 50% of the voting rights in the board of companies for elected worker representatives, are actually working quite well. And so, you know, I know shareholders in the US or in Britain or actually in France, in my own country, don't like that at all. But in fact, you know, the countries like Germany or Sweden, where, where workers representatives are on board, you know, it's not working so badly as, as compared to French firms or, or British firms or US firms. And because I think it's a way to involve workers in the definition of the long-run strategy of companies. And uh, all the creation of wealth in general is, is collective by, by nature. If you have good uh, cars at Tesla, you know, this is not the individual genius of Mr. Elon Musk. You know, you have thousands of tens of thousands of engineers. But he also wants to return to the post-war consensus, in which the government had a much greater role in the economy, and used taxes to redistribute wealth directly. I think in particular the proposals that were made by uh, uh, Warren and Sanders regarding the progressive wealth tax. It is time for a wealth tax in America. I want to remind everybody what the wealth tax is. It is a tax on the... uh, Fortunes above $50 million. In other words, your first $50 million is free and clear, but your $50 millionth and first dollar, you got to pay two cents. We stop tax rate on wealth uh, you know, going up to 6, 8, or even 10% per year for top billionaires. You know, our, our 
the only way, you know, to get the concentration of wealth under control and just to return to a situation that we had in the 80s or 70s in, in this country. And, and, you know, the level of enormous concentration of wealth and economic power that we have today is simply not necessary. And you have lots of people in the, you know, bottom 50% or actually bottom 90% of the population who would benefit a lot from a more progressive tax system. He argues that a direct tax on wealth, along with higher marginal tax rates on income, could pay for a much more generous welfare system. And President Biden is talking a lot about inequality, especially in terms of industrial policy. He's no fan of trade deals, and his advisors explicitly disavow the old era. When I came to office, I had a fundamental decision to make. We're going to continue trickle-down economic as a policy that's failed time and again that grew inequality, that saw jobs go overseas, that saw, and you've seen it out here, towns hollowed out. Now, Biden, in all of this, you know, is doing interesting things, you know, and I'm following closely what he's doing in terms of industrial policy. You know, it's clear that we live at a time where people are ready to, to question some old uh, sort of certainties about, uh, uh, you know, about economic policy. We're not going to continue down the trickle-down path as long as I'm president. This is the moment we're finally going to make a break and move away from an economy that has existed in a fundamentally different direction. At the same time, you know, I think he's not really questioning the very high level of inequality that we have in the U.S. today. And I know it's difficult to get a majority, but if you're not clear about where you want to go in the long run, you know, how are you going to get there? Biden has so far been able to pass big industrial policy bills under the banner of climate or national security, like the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, explained in a closely watched speech in April how the administration saw foreign affairs and domestic economic policy as completely intertwined. That's why the United States under President Biden is pursuing a modern industrial and innovation strategy, one that invests in the sources of our economic and technological strength, that promotes diversified and resilient global supply chains, that sets high standards for everything from labor and the environment to trusted technology and good governance, and that deploys capital to deliver on public goods like climate and health. Some of what we call industrial policy today look a lot like, you know, subsidies and a sort of new wave of uh, tax competition and race to the bottom. So we have to be very careful. I mean, some of them are targeted toward technologies that, that are more useful than the technologies subsidized in the past. So that's good. But it's still a form of uh, race to the bottom. You know, I would prefer some... Uh, you know, investment in, in public infrastructure or, you know, with a different kind of governance and more involvement of uh, worker representative. Here, we could just have a new wave of public subsidies to, to, to private capital accumulation. Despite the hiccups, Piketty believes that the long arc of the universe bends towards greater equality. I want to be optimistic that at some point we'll get there, simply because the other solution are not going to work. And, you know, at some point when something is not working, okay, you know, you try Trump and then you get rid of it. And then, you know, there's a trial and error process which uh, works, you know, to some extent in the democratic arena and and, uh, I think will keep working in the future, at least in the long run.
So, Idris, you've written this week about the horseshoe theory of what's happening in economic philosophy on right and left in America. And it is just so striking listening to the agreement between Thomas Piketty, who's really a hero to a lot of people on the left in America, and Orin Cass, who's not. I mean, I find myself listening to both of them and thinking that I'm not convinced that if you went back to the kind of 60s or 70s, that would be an improvement. I mean, I think the past few decades have seen, you know, extraordinary growth and, you know, kind of success in America's economy, particularly when you compare it to other countries. And that's something we've talked about on the podcast before. And I think it's quite easy to be kind of nostalgic and assume that the the past was better. But I kind of park that thought. Charlotte, you'd sort of expect, given this convergence, that it would be easier to get laws passed through Congress to change things in the way that both Piketty and Cass would like. But do you think that will happen eventually? Or do you think that sort of culture war politics will get in the way? It's funny because even though you see this convergence a bit between members of the right and left, and you see some collaboration like the one that we've seen between J.D. Vance and Elizabeth Warren, I just remain very skeptical that you'll see big examples of partnership that result in legislation, at least in the short term. It just doesn't seem like an area, particularly after Biden has succeeded in passing these big legislative bills on on, on chips or the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. It doesn't seem like it'd be politically advantageous for either party to work together. But what do you think, Idris? Yeah, I think that although there is convergence on economic thinking, there is so much divergence on issues of culture and social affairs that, you know, the trust isn't really there to build the kinds of legislative compromises that you would need, right? So although people agree on, you know, the need for industrial policy, there's a lot of disagreement between the parties about that. So I think that, you know, you could see some things, but I don't think we're going to enter an era of good feelings in which uh, Republicans and Democrats hold hands and do lots of transformative economic policy together. Do you share their fundamental concern about income inequality and wealth inequality in America? Or, Or do you think to focus on that is really to focus on the wrong problem? I think that there are people who, like Professor Piketty, who think that inequality per se is a problem and needs to be ameliorated. And there are others who think of inequality as an instrument that needs to be addressed to get to other things, whether it's higher growth or greater social mobility. And I was once talking with an economics professor at the University of Chicago who said to me with a kind of twinkle in his eye, distributions are infinitely dimensional objects and you can summarize them many ways, which I think is is right, right? So you can imagine there are ways of characterizing the income distribution, right? You can focus on inequality, you can focus on poverty, you can focus on mobility. And you have to decide, you know, which of these metrics, which of those infinite dimensions you're going to ignore and which uh, few you're going to focus on. And me personally, I think I'm a bit more of a sufficientarian. I think that if, if people are if people at the bottom are doing better, then it doesn't matter so much to me what's going on at the top. You know, if inequality is a means to addressing these ends, if reducing inequality reduces poverty or it increases social mobility or it increases growth, then maybe it's the right avenue to pursue. If it's just a kind of aesthetic reshaping of the income distribution to look a bit better and a little less lopsided, um, that's not as compelling for me as maybe it is for other people. Surely it is not just something that is 
compelling for its advocates, but a means to pay for the programs that would support the lower ends of the income distribution. So a means to pay for the $300 monthly childcare payments that would have child poverty or a means to pay for investments in education. One thing I've noted, though, Idris, in your reporting on this, which I really enjoy, is that some of the programs that would really go a long way towards helping poor children or investing in education in a way that would enhance long-term mobility, that those investments actually really don't cost that much money. Um, certainly not in the in the grand scheme of things. Uh, kids are generally cheaper. They don't have large health care costs, so you can get quite a lot of, of good for an expenditure of, of cash. So the, the expanded child benefits, for example, are about $100 billion more expensive than the current policy, which is a decent amount of money. It's but it's uh, an amount that the federal government spends fairly regularly and without much thought. Correcting educational disparities also uh, might be in the same order of magnitude. And then there are also just regulatory things that, that can be done that don't require an expenditure of cash per se, but would nonetheless be hugely important. So actually desegregating American cities is largely a regulatory problem. It's it's a problem of zoning and laws that, that needs fixing. Desegregating American schools by class as well is, is something that doesn't require an ex- insane expenditure of cash. All right, let's leave it there for this episode. It's quiz time. And appropriately enough, given what we've been discussing, this is a quiz about tax. In 1861, The pressure of the Civil War meant that America introduced its first income tax with a flat 3% on everything over $800, which is about $30,000 today. That was repealed a decade later, only to return again. Question one, who was the first president to file for federal income taxes? They, They needed an amendment, right, to do it in the Constitution, like the 16th Amendment. Um... So, like, was it Grant? Maybe? I don't know. It was later than Grant. It was President Warren G. Harding. In Hmm. 1923, Harding paid about $17,000 in tax on his presidential salary of $75,000. In today's money, that's about $300,000 in taxes, which means that his presidential salary in 1923 was pretty hefty. Although the modern income tax was introduced in 1913, only the very wealthiest Americans paid it. That changed during the Second World War. The federal government enlisted pop culture icons like Irving Berlin, who wrote the hit tune, I Paid My Income Tax Today. (laughs) Question two. Which cartoon character joined the Charm campaign and featured in an animated film about how to file taxes? Might have been Mickey Mouse, but I would think that Disney would be kind of anti-income tax as a guy. Was there any other person making cartoon characters around this era? Uh, the only one I could think of was Mickey Mouse. I don't know any yeah. other any other old-timey cartoon characters. The answer, unfortunately, is Donald Duck. Hmm. Before we go, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we had a dissent sent in by Idris's sister on affirmative action. So I wanted to play you guys that. My thoughts on the end of affirmative action mainly revolve around the hypocrisy the Supreme Court displayed in ending affirmative action for only students of color, with no attention to ending preferences for legacies or children of donors. At its core, affirmative action was meant to be a blunt tool of reparations, or an attempt to balance the scales of higher education access after centuries of formalized American discrimination. 
getting rid of this system without any attention to the formalized systems that advance the already privileged is irresponsible at best. And here, I think Idris and I agree completely. I think we disagree a bit more on the role of Asian Americans in this fight. The model minority narrative was key to the end of affirmative action. We saw that similar suits based off of the experiences of white students have failed. The fact is, however, whatever the whining of affluent Asian Americans who did not get into their dream schools may say, we are overrepresented at top universities, and our ability to enter this country as immigrants was guaranteed by Black civil rights activists. This is a big place where Idris and I disagree, because I don't think affirmative action had to end in order for us to make admissions fairer. I think it could have been improved upon without the lasting political damage we've created now. I don't think we needed affirmative action to end. We just needed it to adapt. The appropriate response to that is obviously, boom. But no doubt there are points within that well-presented argument that you'd contest, Idris. Yes, definitely. Uh, I think we will have a very constructive and civil dialogue in Thanksgiving. And if any of Idris's other siblings want to get in touch to correct his opinions, we're eager to hear from you. So, Sana, thank you. We enjoyed that. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have a checks and balance newsletter, which you can sign up for at economist.com slash newsletters. If you're heading off on a summer holiday soon and you need a few books to take on the plane, maybe to distract you from the singing children, a reminder that The Age of Innocence, The Sound and the Fury and Invisible Man are the books we'll be discussing in an episode in August. At least two of those are not directly on the theme of inequality, but very much central to each novel. Yes, I'm really enjoying The Age of Innocence's insights into the sort of gilded age at the moment. So do read along and email us at podcasts at economist.com to let us know what you think of our picks. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.